day. Welcome to our Wednesday night service. Um, I want to first invite our uh, ushers to come forward. Uh, this is where we take our, our weekly tithes and offering. Um, guests, uh, as we say every week, this isn't for you, but, but Timberline family, this is for you. Um, thank you for your, your stewardship, for your faithfulness in, in giving. So you can go ahead and pass those plates. Um, hey, let me make just a couple of quick uh, comments before we begin. One is, I want to really encourage you to, to do something that we easily fall out of the habit of doing, I do, I know, um, is, is bringing your Bible. Um, anytime you're, you're in a Bible study, one of the things you know, that we try to make Wednesday nights is a time where we really get to know Scripture. That, that is the central tool, we believe, by which God shepherds us, guides us, instructs us in our life. And, and, and my desire is that I would get to know Scripture uh, well so that I can, I can study it regular. It's not intimidating for me. So as we do that slowly, piece by piece, week by week, we become more familiar with it. So I would encourage you to bring yours in. If you don't have one, let us know. We would like to give you one, okay, to put one in your hands. Anyone, anyone know, if you're somewhat familiar with the Christian calendar, anyone know what today is? Yeah, Ash, Ash Wednesday, right? Um, we're going to be starting an Easter series on, on Wednesday night here in just, a, in just a couple weeks. Now, for the Christian calendar, today is the beginning of this season called Lent. And Lent is this 40-day process. If you go to Easter and you back up 40 days, excluding Sundays, Lent is this Christian season, which, which followers of Jesus have, have celebrated for centuries and so, while we're not necessarily going to be starting that today, um, I want you to be aware, we are going to be starting an Easter series here just in a few weeks as we, as we lead up to that. Um, I was talking to my kids uh, yesterday, and they were saying they, they attend a, a school, which is at, uh, it's, a, it's a Christian school, and it's, it's from a tradition where the Christian calendar is, is celebrated regularly, and, and so they had chapel this morning. And so they had the option to come forward, and they actually put, you know, the ashes in the shape of a cross on, on Ash Wednesday on their forehead. And my kids have never done this, so they're just like going, you know, what's, what is this about? So we kind of had a fun, you know, conversation at the dinner table last night talking about, like, what is this? What's going on? What it's about? So we'll, we'll kind of come back to that here in a few weeks. Um, we, we are part of a church which is Protestant. And um, who, who owes much to various different movements, uh, reform movements throughout history. One of those being the Protestant Reformation that, you know, that took place. This is like in the 16th century, the early 1500s. And we think of names like uh, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, uh, Ehrlich Zwingli. But, but, but there was one guy who, who predated all of these guys uh, by about 150 years. And really laid the groundwork for, for much of, went, of what went on in this Reformation with, within the church. And his name was John Wycliffe. Um, <clears throat> many people refer to John Wycliffe as the, the morning star of the Reformation. Meaning he was kind of this early on guy. He, he kind of laid the groundwork for it. He, he got the ball rolling. And one of his greatest passions was to enable believers, all believers, the average believer... To, to have this, to have scripture, what we talked about a few minutes ago, in their own vernacular, in their common language of the day. For him, that would have been Middle English. 
rather than in what they would have heard when they came to church, which was Latin, something very familiar, uh, unfamiliar rather, to their ears. And so in the 1830s, he, he translated, John Wycliffe translated from, from, from the Latin Vulgate. He didn't go back to the original languages, but he used what he had translated from the Latin Vulgate, a, a Bible that, that was in English, and this is a Bible that would have you know, predated the King James Bible by over 200 <coughs> years, and that's what we call the Wycliffe Bible. And one thing we've been doing every week is reciting Psalm 23, what, what we're going through from a, from a different translation every week just to kind of hear it with fresh ears, hear, hear it in phrases that are a little bit uh, different. Sometimes that, that, that kind of helps us explore things that we pass by without thinking because we've just heard it so many times. So would you do this? Would you read with me Psalm 23, <clears throat> verses 1 through 6, and we're going to read from this ancient uh, Middle English early translation, what we call the Wycliffe Bible. Okay, and I think we should have that up on the screen here. No, just I'm up on the screen. Well, maybe, maybe it won't help you. How about, oh, there it is. No, it's not. There it is. Okay, good. Would you read this with me if you would? It's not on yours. It's on mine. It's not on yours. Okay, all of you come up here so you can see this screen. No, that, that won't work. Okay, there it is. Okay. You ready? The Lord governeth me, and there is nothing that I shall lack. He hath set me in a place of pasture. He nourished me by the waters of refreshing. He transformed my soul. He led me forth on the right paths for the sake of his name. For though I go in the midst of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou hast prepared a table before me, before those who trouble me. Thou hast covered my head with oil and my cup, which thou greatly fillest, and full indeed it runneth over. And I shall, they shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall live in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Tonight we're going to be looking at verse 6, we're, we're, we're rounding out this, this passage of Psalm chapter 23, and verse 6 reads from, I'm going to be reading from the TNIV, TNIV, or today's New International Version, reads, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there's a, there's a key idea in this psalm that that's speaks of this kind of peculiar kind of love, which makes this entire relationship that Psalm 23 has, be ta has been talking about, the shepherd, this gracious warrior king who, who hosts him, these different analogies. But we kind of come down to one word which kind of pulls it all together, makes sense of it all, and again, makes this whole passage possible. Let me write for you, this is, this is the Hebrew word, that, that, that we would transliterate, or the sound of it. And the word is hesed. Hesed. Sometimes it's pronounced kesed with, with a ch, but we'll pronounce it for tonight as hesed. Hesed refers to... Now, this is the word that, that we translate, surely your hesed will follow me. 
Okay, so we translate that as like goodness, sometimes mercy, your love. And we kind of struggle to translate it because it's really, it's this packed, it's a word that we don't have an exact equivalent for, but it's packed with all this concept. And usually the word is tied with the idea of love, but within a really tight covenant, faithful relationship, like unbreakable kind of relationship. Okay, that's, that's where this word is taking us. So Psalm 23 teaches us the best way to understand God's hesed, or the, the, this faithful love, is through analogy, because there really is no other hesed in our world. We have lots of different kinds of loves, but we don't have this hesed, and so, so Scripture leans on analogies, and that's what this psalm does. It uses the analogy of a, of a shepherd and sheep. It uses the analogy of, of this warrior king host and the person who has come under the protection of his home. And so this passage seeks to really um, correct kind of a cultural um, obstacle, a misunderstanding, which often blinds us to really getting what it means when God says, I love you in this, in this hesed concept. And so we struggle with questions often because, that, you know, does God really love me? Is God really good? Does God really care? Right? These are the questions that run throughout Scripture. These are the questions that run throughout our life as well. So the first question we want to ask is, um, what, what do we mean by love? Right? Because we use that word in so many different ways, don't we? Um, C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, really explores this idea and, and I've, I've, I've leaned heavily on him tonight for some of these ideas. Let me read for you a, a, a statement of his that kind of gets us to this idea. Um, he says, anytime most of us in the modern world use the word love, usually what we mean by it, we kind of go like this. Maybe I'll write it down so we can kind of grasp this. We say the word love, and kind of what we mean by it Like, we almost use this as a synonym, is being kind, right? Kindness. And Lewis says this, the desire to see others than the self happy, he's talking about what kindness is, the, the desire to see others than the self happy, not happy in any particular way, not like happy from this, but, but, but just happy. He says, that's what kindness is. He said, um, what, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything that we happened to like doing, what does it matter so long as everyone's contented? And he goes on to say, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Okay, he has such a great way of putting it. Here's the question. What if, what if when God says he, he loves us, he uses this packed word, you know, hesed, I love you, our, our obstacle to love as this kindness um, isn't at all what God has in mind when he says, I love you. What if, what if his conception of love, which while not completely different from ours, is so much bigger, involves so much more than our kinds of. See, mere, mere kindness um, leads, 
leads people to, to treating others or the, the object of their kindness almost with like indifference, even contempt, I would say. Um, see, mere kindness doesn't really care whether the person that they're being kind to um, becomes good or bad, do they? Mere kindness only cares that that person or thing escapes suffering. Um, we've all known people who, whose kindness has, has led them to kill an animal, right? Put it down, put it out of its misery because it has, it's, it's suffering. And because it's not, you know, we wouldn't say, well, it's, a, it's this great being. Let's just kind of put it out of its misery because I care more about it suffering than about it becoming good, as it were. Um, See, it's for people that we really care about that kindness is not enough, right? Um, our friends, lovers, children, that, that, that we're actually exacting. And I would suggest that we would even rather them, them go through much suffering than for them to just be happy in any old way they want it, right? Any single, any single thing that, that makes them happy. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I were watching a a television show, it's on um, TLC. And the name of the show is called uh, My Strange Addiction. Anyone seen, anyone admit to seeing this? I know some of you have, probably you won't admit to seeing it, but it's this, it's this show that you end up watching just to gawk. I mean, it's it, it's sad situation, but you end up, you kind of like laugh because you just don't even know how to respond to these odd scenarios. And it focuses on, on these people with these odd compulsive behaviors. Now the, now, the name of the show is My Strange Addiction. Really, you know, from a psychological perspective, none of these are addictions in the classical sense. But they're more along, uh, along the lines of um, obsessive compulsive disorders, you know, psychoses, uh, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, various different things like that. But some, so like there was one guy on there who, um, it, his, he eats couch cushions. I mean, I'm serious. And so, like, he feels this stress and anxiety, and so he's, he, he's been doing this for years, and so the way to push that down is he forces these pieces of couch cushions down his throat. Um, there was a lady who slept with a blow dryer. She, was a, she, was, she had this compulsion. She had to sleep with it blowing on her, this hot air, while she slept. There was a 25-year-old woman who was an adult baby, uh, refused to grow up, drank from bottles, pacifier, wore, di wore unused, diapers all day long. There was a guy who, uh, who was dating his car. He had named his car Chase. And I mean, literally like went out on dates with his car, was, you know, had this bizarre affection and a, an attraction to this car. There was this one guy, this is so, I, I'm a little bit of a germ freak, so this just creeps me out. Uh, this person, a 28-year-old man who has this compulsion to pull hair out of drains. But it's not just his own drains. He like goes to public places, other people's homes, and as soon as he gets there, he has this anxiety because you know, can I use your uh, restroom? And he's you know off, off into the bathroom pulling hair out of drains. And as soon as he does it, he feels relieved, but then he starts feeling this this guilt again, um, and, and on and on. There was the one that another nasty one. There was a woman who, who would lick cats. Uh, can you imagine how dirty cats are? Would lick cats, and um. Again, you know, the sad part of the show is it really is little more than just, you know, gawking at these people. The majority of the show is just watching them. And it's like the last few minutes that, that, that this therapist comes in 
And what, what, what's, what strikes me so much as I watch this is the, these therapists, because they have no concept of, of, it's not real love, it's kindness. Because every time it's, well, we don't want to make any judgments. We don't want to say what you're doing is, it's not bad. As long as it doesn't hurt yourself. As long as you're not, you know, physically damaging yourself. There's nothing, no, no, no evaluative statements are made. So there's no desire to say, let's actually have you pursue becoming a solid, mature person. It's just, if that makes you happy and you're not hurting anyone, who am I to say anything? And it's this picture of mere kindness. But it is not real love because it doesn't care about the object becoming good or even bad. And so at the, at the end of the day, this therapist is actually, I would suggest, showing contempt for this person, disrespect for this person. It's not chesed. It's not love. So like Psalm 23, um, th throughout Scripture, God uses different analogies to try to get at, okay, you know what kindness is. We all do that. But what, ab what about this deep, deep concept that you've never fully known, hesed or love? And so I want to think about a couple illustrations from Scripture of these analogies that, that help us understand because this is what Scripture uses. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Scripture uses what we do know to teach us what we do not yet know. So the first one that it uses, and I'll, even, I'll just write a couple of these up here. The first relationship is the relationship of an artist to his or her art. Now, now this might be one of the lowest analogies that there is, um, but, but this is in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 18, he, he tells this story of a, of a potter and his clay, and he says this is this picture of how God is molding, how he's shaping, how he's in control of our lives. Um, likewise, in the New Testament, Peter, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, speaks of the whole church being like a building, and there's this, this architect who's creating it, and he goes further to say, each of those stones are the individuals in God's church. Now, of course, the limitation of this analogy is that, you know, stones aren't, aren't sentient beings. They don't, they don't have personality, so we lose some of that. But, but here's the helpful piece in this picture. We, we are, this is not just an analogy, we quite literally are divine work of art. Something God is making and something that he's not satisfied with until it has a certain character, a certain goodness, a certain beauty to it. And Lewis says, in God making us his magnum opus, biblical language is the, the crown of creation, the highest creation there, his greatest work, he paid us, and I love this phrase, Lewis says, God paid us an, paid us an intolerable compliment. Okay? Think about that phrase. God paid us a compliment so high that we can't even tolerate it, meaning we don't even want it. We're uncomfortable with it. And oftentimes we re we're repulsed by it because it's, it is so great for us that we can't even handle it. Why is that? See, an artist may not... Um, take a whole lot of time when, when he sketches just a tiny little you know, thumbnail sketch or something like that. But listen to Lewis's words. He says, speaking of this illustration of an artist, he says, over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, he will take endless troubles. 
and would, without doubt, give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. And he finishes by saying, but then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Isn't that interesting? That has paid us an intolerable compliment of being the crown of creation. So he will rub and he will scratch and he will recommence us, not ten times, but ten times ten. An infinite number of times until he has made us the object that is his magnum opus. Okay, how about a second illustration that we see used? A master and his animal. Um, of course, Scripture uses this picture. This is used in this very psalm that we're looking at. Um, we are the we are the people of God, the sheep of His pasture. That's used this image of a of a master with his animals. We might think of a dog. It's probably something more common in our day. You know, for a dog to live in a master's house, his natural state of being a wild dog has to be interfered with, right? It has to be bothered. It has to be rearranged in order for the dog to become lovable. Um, you know, a, a dog, a wild dog, you bring it into the house, it, it smells, right? So you have to wash it. It goes to the bathroom anywhere it wants, so it has to be house trained. It, it, it eats anything that it sees, so it has to be taught uh, not to steal. Well, imagine for a second, imagine if this puppy, okay, little puppy being trained, were a theologian for a moment. Okay, if this puppy could reflect, don't you think that this whole training process would call into question the goodness of its master? Right? Does this? Does he really want what's best for me? Does he really love me? Why? Because he's not letting me just do whatever I want. He's not letting me be happy. This love thing requires something so deep, so arduous, so difficult. He's paying me an intolerable compliment but see the full-grown fully trained dog who is healthier than the wild one longer lifespan than the other one who's who's been given full admittance by grace into the family into the affections the loyalties all the comforts of the house is is in a sense completely beyond his nature right that's not what he should that's not what he deserves that's not what he would normally get on his own he's completely beyond that question, how many of us at sometimes wish that God would just kind of leave us alone, <laughs> leave, leave me to my own impulses, um, kind of wish that God would stop training me to become something that, that can feel so unnatural. But again, as Lewis says, once again, I'm not asking for more love, I'm asking for less love when I ask that question. Let me give you a third picture. Parent-child analogy. Again, that's used in Scripture. Um, this is a higher analogy, again, as we go. Um, in Scripture, refers to the parent's love for a child. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, 
In the ancient world, this was true. It's not always, it's certainly not true, hopefully not true in ours, but in the ancient world, and Paul, or, or the author of Hebrews, is kind of leaning on this picture where he says, it's, it's only in a household where there are many children of different lineages, he says, it's only the legitimate child, one comes from the certain mother and the certain father, who would receive discipline of schooling, discipline of training, so that he would become like the father in all ways. So that he would be able to reflect this, this lineage that the father holds that he doesn't pass on to anyone. And Paul uses that as an illustration. Um, how strong is the love of a parent who says, um, I love my child, but I don't really care if, you know, they're a liar. I, don't, I love my child, but I don't really care if they're a drunk. Uh, I, don't, you know, I love my child, just so long as they're having a good time. Well, all of us would look at that and say, well, no, that's, that's, not, that's a shallow love. That's closer to this kindness thing, but it's not hesed. It's not real love. Um, I mean, imagine different people that I would know. Someone, um, a woman comes to me and, and tells me that of her, of her own free will, she's not being forced into it, this is hypothetical, tells me that she, um, she wants to become a prostitute, okay? I, I say, what are, you, what are you talking about? I try to convince her otherwise. I argue, you know, I argue with her, and you know, she says, I'm sorry, I'm going to do it. And I say, well, you're an idiot. You know? And I leave, and I walk away, right? and I go back to my other duties. My daughter comes to me and tells me she's going to be a prostitute. I yell, I scream, I, I cry, I sell my house, I do whatever, I do whatever it takes. Um, I'm willing to, you know, I pray that God would bring her to the end of her rope, even causing her pain, anything so that she doesn't get to that place. Because it's not mere kindness when you're talking about my little girl. It's hesed. I care more about the good person she becomes than the comfort she has or, or, or becoming merely happy. You know, I think about parents that I've talked to who, um, whose child has, has chosen a lifestyle which is destructive to themselves, which, which is contrary to God's will, and there's this immense pressure, certainly in our culture, there's this immense pressure on them for the parents to say, it's okay, I affirm your lifestyle, I embrace your lifestyle, whatever you want to do, so long as you're happy. And see, there's this cultural pressure that is moving toward kindness and away from love and moves us to say, again, in the end, it looks more like contempt. But see, to our world to this upside-down kingdom that Jesus talks about, well, that doesn't look like love. That looks like hate. Challenges that we have. Let me draw a fourth, uh, a fourth picture here, or a fourth illustration that we see in Scripture. A man to a woman. Um, final analogy of God's love for us is, is a man's love for a woman who is his lover, who he is pursuing. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's, there's this really interesting picture. Um, it pictures Israel as, as a newborn infant girl. Now, we think of that as, oh, that's cute and that's adorable. In the ancient world, when girls are less desirable, like in other parts of our world today, they're thrown out to die of exposure still covered in, in, in blood right after birth, laid out. And it pictures Israel as this, as this baby, little girl, who's been left out for exposure on the side of the road, and a wealthy young man 
finds her, takes her in to live in his household, grow up among the household. She grows up into a young lady. And as he grows up also, he finds her beautiful and he proposes to her and he asks her to marry him. Now, again, a big deal because this is a woman who, because of her background, probably no one would marry. And yet, it's the man of the house. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, uh, he says, uh, I passed by her, and when I looked at her and saw that she was old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a marriage covenant with you. Verse 9 says, I bathe you with water and wash the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothe you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen, covered you with costly garments, adored you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arm, a necklace around your neck, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because of the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect. And in verse 15, he ends with a tragedy. But you treated your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. And he says, and anyone passed by, you had no standard. You gave yourself to absolutely anyone. This is why in the book of James speaks of turning away against God. It uses the picture of adultery. Ephesians 5 tells us that, that Christ, I'm sorry, tells us that the church is the Lord's bride whom he loves so much hesed. He cares about so much that he will not even endure on the wedding dress, this beautiful white wedding dress, even a spot or a wrinkle on the wedding gown. See, true love demands the perfection of the beloved. Lewis says at one point, um, a man may love the beloved after her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. Love may forgive all imperfections and love in spite of them, but love will always desire to remove those perfections, to someday have all those blemishes gone because the love is so deep it cares about the, it cares about the good of that one. And when the Bible tells us that, that God loves you, do you know what it means? It means God loves you. <laughs> Not some mere um, disinterested uh, indifferent way, uh, being somehow concerned about your welfare or something like that. Lewis puts it this way, it is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not a cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guest, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world's so when David writes, Psalm 23, verse 6, surely Hesed will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because, see, this, this Hesed love is, is, is not, it's not merely um, out of somewhere which we don't just look for this thing out there. This verse is telling us in verse 6 that this hesed actually pursues us. Look at the language. It says, 
um, follow. Your, your hesed follows me. Now, this isn't merely like passively walking behind someone, like you're walking down the street and I'm following you. Um, I love uh, Dr. Matt Hickey when he spoke a couple weeks ago. Do you remember? He, he quoted Francis Thompson's short poem, The Hound of Heaven. Do you remember that? This beautiful, fantastic old poem. And it pictures divine grace that is so bold, so fearless, relentlessly pursuing us, that it's like a hound chasing after a rabbit, steadily, never getting tired, never ending. And in verse 6, he says, this, this hesed is pursuing David. And again, remember, this is written in a time where David would normally say, my enemies are pursuing me. So he's contrasting God's hesed is pursuing me at a faster rate, a more complete picture, even than which my enemies are pursuing me. God is after me long before I ever notice him or am after him. 1 John 4.10 said, this is love. And that's what we're talking about. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us, that he pursued us, that he chased after us, that the hound of heaven relentlessly pursued with this hesed love. But the text doesn't just say that God pursues us with it. It says that he pursues us continually throughout life and into eternity. Now, the text literally says, um, surely your, your, your hesed follows me till end of days. Okay? So while we might think, okay, well, that doesn't guarantee me, like, you know, this whole grace thing into eternity, does it? Um, even after my death. Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 31. Jesus points out that those whom God is in a covenant, that's his hesed thing, a covenant relationship with, extends beyond the grave. Remember, he says, God is, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says he's not the God of the, of the dead, but of the living. That's what he's saying. He is still their God. God is still the God of Abraham, though he's gone off this earth. He's still the God of Jacob, though he's gone off this earth. He's still the God of Isaac, though he's gone off this earth. Similarly, Romans 8.38, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death can separate me from the love. The hesed would be the Old Testament word of God. And in verse 6, we see that the goal of life is is stated in the last verse. This, this whole psalm is like a pilgrimage. You start, as, you start down in the, in the little uh, pasture, you move to the valley, and at the end of this pilgrimage, you end at the temple, what he calls the house of God. And the goal of life, he points out, is to live in the house of God, meaning where God lives, to dwell with him. You turn to Revelation 21, the, the very end of the story, and you know the language that uses to describe our experience in eternity of what it will be like a new heavens, new earth, the goal, the prize, what we've been waiting for? He says, then finally, the dwelling of God will be with the dwelling of man. The house of God. It's this final place of, of true intimacy, being together, and God will give us what will make us most happy. What we've longed for and everything we've ever sought after now, all the little goods, all the little truths, all the little beautiful things, he will give us himself because he is those things. When God first 
called Israel into this Hesed uh, covenant relationship with them. Um, he made a covenant, and in, in, in Exodus chapter 24, we have this stated out. We have this recounting of, of him calling this people to himself, revealing himself to her, and making this covenant of, of this Hesed love. And there's this interesting passage in Exodus 24. Um, God tells Moses to bring the leaders, not, not all Israel, because there's too many. He says, just, just get some, he gives them the number, to, to represent Israel. And I want you to come worship on a mountain. And he says this in Exodus 24, verse 4. And Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent the young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed as young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood of the bulls and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood of the bulls, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. We're told that um, Moses and the leaders at the very end of all this, uh, these representatives had, had a meal. And the language of text says is they ate and they drank. Because see, in the ancient world, the final token to a covenant is food. Eat and drink. You have a meal. Many years later, before Jesus went up onto a mountain, he also gathered 12 whom he had appointed as leaders, representatives of all Israel. And he ate and he drank with them. And he said something really interesting. Uh, he said, not just this is the blood of the covenant with the Lord. He said, this is my blood of a new covenant. And at that moment, it finally became clear that God's hesed, his dangerous, thick, robust love was, was expressed. It was poured out more clearly than it had ever been seen in all of history. And his faithful love was so deep that it would carry his own son to that mountain. But on the mountain was a cross. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. And, I, and we're going to reimagine.